0: let bow your heads with me once more as we go to the Lord to ask his blessing on the preaching of his word. Let's pray together. Well, Father, we confess that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. We have tried to live on bread alone, even this week. and We have failed. We have tried to nourish our souls on things that do not satisfy we have spent our money on that which is not bread. And so we pray, would you feed us now on the bread of life, Jesus Christ? When you say in your word, the grass withers and the flower fades, surely the peoples are like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. Forever. So speak it to us now, by your grace, by your spirit, and your word, for your servants are listening, for Jesus' sake, amen. A New York City bishop was recently robbed at gunpoint in Brooklyn as he was preaching a live stream sermon in the pulpit. Truth is stranger than fiction. You can't make this stuff up. This bishop was robbed of over a million dollars in jewelry, much of which he had on his own person as he was preaching. The rest was taken off of his wife's person. He had recently shown off his blessed bling, with a social media post of a selfie as he sat smiling in his Rolls Royce. It's probably the company car, right? I have to admit, I had a difficult time not relishing the irony of that story. One criminal robbed by another. Though the bishop did confirm to the New York Post later last week that the robbery was not staged for the purpose of committing insurance fraud. Well, that's reassuring. After all, if you don't have your integrity. The mayor of New York City decried the incident in a press release saying, no one in this city should be the victim of an armed robbery, let alone our faith leaders and congregants worshiping in a house of God. It appears in this instance, however, that the sheep had already been fleeced with no need of a firearm. This is not the way Jesus treats the flock. If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to John 10, 1 through 21, we'll see Jesus as both the door into the sheep pen Where he keeps his sheep, and he is also the shepherd of the sheep himself. The point of his intentionally mixed metaphor in John 10 is that Jesus alone gives authorized access to the church because he alone gave the authorized sacrifice for the church. He is the door because he is the good shepherd. Jesus alone gives authorized access to the church because he alone gave the authorized sacrifice for the church. Follow along with me as I read our text out loud for us, John 10, 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door... "'But climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and robber. "'But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. "'To him the gatekeeper opens. "'The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. "'When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, "'and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice.'" If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fault, Among the Jews, because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So Jesus alone gives authorized access to the church because he alone gave the authorized sacrifice. For the church. So, first point, John 10, 1 through 10, Jesus alone gives authorized access to the church. This discourse is part of the same conversation Jesus started with the Pharisees last week at the end of John 9. He came for judgment, discernment, differentiation, discrimination, good judgment, right judgment, that the blind may see, that those who think they see would become blind. The Pharisees asked, Surely you don't think we, the leaders of Israel, of all people, are blind? No way. You can't mean that, he had said. You can't be serious, but that's exactly what he is serious about. That's what he's saying. They, the teachers of Israel, are blind because they don't see Jesus for who he is. And yet, the blind man who he had just healed, he's the one who sees Jesus rightly. It's ironic. Now Jesus is continuing that same conversation with these same Pharisees through chapter 10, verse 21, where the Pharisees themselves refer back to the healing of the blind man. It's the same conversation, but now making a different point. Last week, the point was, you only know God truly if you see Jesus rightly. Here, in chapter 10, Jesus now focuses on who should have access to God's people and who should be recognized by them as leaders. Now, you can't make the metaphor walk on all fours. Not every element of the metaphor corresponds to a reality. It's simple. You know who the robber is by how he tries to get access to the sheep. That guy has to climb over the wall, whereas the one who walks right through the door, he's the shepherd. A first century sheep pen was often connected to a house and it was usually enclosed by a kind of high stone wall with briars or thorns on top for what would have been functioning as pre-modern barbed wire, make it hard to climb over. The sheep would usually go out to feed early in the morning before the heat led out by the shepherd. They'd find some shade during the day, feed again in the evening, and come back inside the pen at night for safety from predators and thieves. There would be a door. There would be a doorkeeper that would be stationed there at night to protect the flock. It was common for shepherds to have a distinctive call or maybe to play a distinctive tune or pattern of notes on a pipe. And the sheep would recognize that. They would learn that. And they would learn, that's my guy, that's who I'm following. Everybody knew this, even though social elites like the Pharisees despised shepherds as rural, uneducated people who did dirty work with dirty animals. The whole metaphor then is about access to the sheep for recognition by the sheep and leadership of the sheep. A shepherd has authorized access. A robber does not. In verse 3, the gatekeeper recognizes a shepherd and opens the gate for him. What's more, the sheep themselves recognize the shepherd's voice. And the shepherd calls his own sheep by name. So it's not just that they hear and recognize him, it's that he knows them, each of them, personally, by name. In verse 4, these sheep are the shepherd's own. They're not someone else's sheep. They're his sheep. He is the owner, not just the operator. This shepherd has skin in the game. And further, because he knows and calls them all by name, and because they hear and recognize his voice as familiar and safe, He is the one who can and does lead them out of the sheep pen and they follow him. He goes first. He's out in front of them confronting the world for them, clearing the path for them, showing them the way and where he leads, they follow because they know and trust his voice. They know him. That word for no, in verse 4 is the same words the Pharisees were constantly using in chapter 9. We know. We know. We know this man can't be from heaven. We know this man is a sinner. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't know where this man is from. We know, we know, we know, we know. Now, though, the tables are turned It's not the Pharisees who know something, it's the sheep they're trying to lead who know better than to follow them. They know the shepherd's voice, and they know they're not hearing it in the voices of the Pharisees. That's why in verse 5, they're not going to follow any other shepherd, much less a thief or a robber. Now again, remember, all of this is on the heels of Jesus having just healed the man born blind. And the blind man refusing to follow the Pharisees in their rejection of Jesus. And the blind man instead recognizing and worshiping Jesus as the son of man. You remember how last week we walked through chapter 9 and as the man was healed and the more the man talks to the Pharisees the more he disagrees with them. and The more he points out their ignorance of who Jesus is and his unwillingness to follow them in that ignorance. He recognized the Pharisees as thieves and robbers. Oh, now this is a funny thing. This is ironic. What a thing to see. He opened my eyes and you don't know where he's from? So the shepherd knows the sheep by name and the sheep know the shepherd, by his voice. Mutual recognition. But in verse 6, John stops to show us in chapter 10 that the Pharisees don't get it. Isn't this interesting? They didn't understand what he was saying to them. Ah. That's trouble. To not understand this figure of speech From Jesus, to not know what Jesus is talking about in this parable is to prove that you're not a sheep who recognizes the voice of the shepherd. You're the thief. You're the robber. If you don't understand this. Even the way John puts it is telling. Just as Jesus had said in verse 1, that man... That robber, the guy who climbs over, that guy's a thief. So here in verse 6, John uses that same pronoun for the Pharisees. It's not just that they did not understand. It's these guys, John said. Those guys. It's derogatory. Referring back to That guy, that wall climber, that thief, that guy is the robber from the parable. John's saying, these guys are those robbers because they don't understand. And it's just like Jesus' critics had been referring to him all throughout John up to this point. They have been referring to him as that guy, that bloke. That chap, that chump, that imposter, and Jesus and John now are turning it around on them. That guy who climbs over the wall, these guys who don't understand, they're the robbers. They're the thieves. Yet they, the Pharisees, think they're the shepherds and teachers of God's flock in Israel. So Jesus has to spell it out for him in verses 7 to 10. I am the door. I am the door. Jesus is now mixing his metaphors without any apology. For anyone else claiming to be an under-shepherd, Jesus is the door, the point of entry, the access point into the sheep. If you want authorized access to God's flock inside the pen, then you have to walk through the door of faith in Jesus Christ, trust in his blood and righteousness, And repentance from your sins and from your self reliance to turn and trust in Him. That's the way in. That's the only way in. And as a door, Jesus restricts access to all false shepherds. There is no leadership of God's people without first being a follower of Jesus yourself. You want to be a shepherd? You got to be a sheep. Jesus says it again, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. That's sheep language. That's about being a sheep. You have to go in through the door through Jesus to become a part of the flock as a sheep yourself before you become a shepherd of the sheep. You yourself will go in and out in verse 9. As led out by the owner of the flock in verse 4, you will find pasture for yourself. You will eat grass by following the shepherd out of the pen and into the pasture. If you want to lead others to be saved, to grow, to feed on Christ, you must first be saved yourself. There's a great danger of an unconverted ministry. And Jesus is warning us of it here. If you want to lead others into the fold, into the flock, you must know the way in yourself. If you want to feed others in the green pastures of Scripture, you have to feed there first. You've got to know the way. All those who came before Jesus are thieves and robbers, he says. The kings of Israel were Israel's shepherds. In passages like Jeremiah 23... The shepherd kings of Israel had scattered God's flock, but God would raise up another new David to lead them. These Pharisees were also acting as if they were self-appointed shepherd leaders, rulers. And they had become elites among the people. They had not become sheep who follow the shepherd. They have not yet entered through the door of Jesus, and the sheep don't recognize their voice. That's why the man born blind argues with them after Jesus healed them in chapter 9. They're thieves, thieves. In verse 10, the thief is only out for himself to steal, kill, and destroy. Why does a thief steal a sheep? Because he wants to eat it. He wants to kill it. Or at least to fleece the sheep. But not Jesus. Jesus came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Jesus did not come to use and abuse the sheep. He came to feed and lead the sheep, to gather them together, to guide them, to guard them against predators and robbers, and to graze them in the green pastures of His word. He came to provide for the sheep an abundance of everything they need, rich food for the soul, security from predatory leadership, and a relationship of knowing the good shepherd and being known by him. As we'll see, he did not come in the first instance to get anything from them at all. He came to give himself to them and for them. I parked by a car the other day with a bumper sticker that read Lions not sheep. Now I get what that means. (laughs) Lions are apex predators. Sheep are prey. Therefore, be a lion not a sheep. I know who I want to be says the driver of that car. I want to be an independent, critical thinker. Nobody's going to devour me. I will do all the eating. Don't be easily misled. Be strong and sophisticated, not weak and simple-minded. We get it. But we should remember, it was the warrior King David who wrote Psalm 23, the Lord is my Shepherd. Assuming himself to be the Lord's sheep. Friend, if you're a non-Christian, if you're a skeptic, one who wants to consider yourself a lion, not a lamb, because you think that's how the world works, have you ever considered why the Bible talks about us as sheep? It's because we are so easily led into the delusion that we can be strong all on our own. The Bible thinks we need to be told, you're a sheep. Why do we need to be told that? Because we like to think of ourselves as lions, that's why. It's not that we can't think critically or carefully, but when it comes to getting the lay of the land in our relationship to right and wrong. Truth and error, God and Satan, heaven and hell. We don't have a GPS for that. We don't have a built-in sense of spiritual direction. We've ruined that by our sin. Our compass is off. And therefore, we are easily misled into thinking that we can lead ourselves. And we Christians think that's the reason evil came to be in the first place. Adam, the first man, was supposed to leave knowledge of good and evil up to God. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Leave that to me, God said. Adam didn't. There was a snake in the garden, Satan, like a lion seeking someone to devour. Adam was convinced to think of himself as a lion, not a sheep. Did God really say ah forget God? You shall not surely die? You don't need to listen to him. Eat that fruit and you're going to be like him. That's why I told you not to do it in the first place. Be a lion, not a sheep. That's why we have 66 books of the Bible. To tell us how off we are about ourselves and about God. A sheep with a lion complex will not last long outside the safety of the flock. His overconfidence would be his undoing. That's what happened to Adam. And we as his posterity have been fumbling issues of right and wrong and heaven and hell and life and death and God and Satan, truth and error ever since. That's why God sent Jesus as the second Adam, the second representative of a whole new kind of humanity who will trust God as he reveals himself to us in Jesus. He obeyed where we disobeyed. He trusted where we disbelieved. He won where we lost. You cannot know God truly unless you see Jesus rightly. But to see Jesus rightly is to see Him as the only access point into being part of God's people, His flock, His sheep. He's the door. He is the only door, the only way in. This is the doctrine of the exclusivity of Christ. I've talked to a couple of you men recently about access points into your home or access points into the church. There's there's a guy here who deliberately chooses his seat because he can see the exits. (laughs) That's sweet. That's good. That's wise. Talking with another one of you, said, You know, I, I like to be able to have my sleeping room where I can hear where anybody would come in on any of the three or four doors in my house. Why do we think like that? Because we understand that access points are dangers. That's why there's only one access point into the flock of God it's Jesus. He is the door. Jesus is how anybody gets access for safety, recognition, and leadership among God's people. There's no other way to become a part of God's people, an insider in the church, Or a leader among God's people than to pass through Jesus as the door. Just to clarify, that means turning from your sin and your self guided ways, turning from teaching yourself, thinking you can know and just assume you know how to relate to God, and trusting instead in Jesus to lead and feed and guide you. Psalm 118, 19 says, This, open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord the righteous shall enter through it. Jesus is that gate from Psalm 118. You become part of God's flock through Jesus as God's authorized protector and provider for his people. He says in John 14:6, "I am the way." To not recognize or follow Jesus' voice is not a mark of independent mature thinking. Or leadership. It's a mark of stubbornness, of rebellion, of thinking you know best how to shepherd your own soul as a sheep who thinks he's a lion. But only good sheep make good shepherds. In fact, you have to learn to follow before you learn to lead. Good followers. Good followers are what make good leaders. If you don't know how to follow, you will never be able to oversee how other people follow. You must follow first. In fact, people who lead without learning to follow end up falling away and leading others to fall away. So, when we're looking for new elders, new godly leaders in the church, we're looking for men who are following Jesus well and men who know which under shepherds to follow and how to spot a thief from a shepherd. Which men are following well? Who's here every time the doors are open? Who's becoming more godly, more able to teach, more teachable? and therefore more able to teach? More exemplar in their doctrinal convictions, more Christ-like in their character and conduct? Who's benefiting most? Who's putting themselves most in the way of growing from the ministry of the church? Who's becoming more like Jesus by following Jesus among us here in the church? This is why we want to recognize elders, not just appoint them or train them. We recognize them. We recognize them in the sense that we see them as those who are following Jesus among us in a way that we want everyone else to follow Jesus among us. We see them in the sense that we look up to the way that they follow already. Without having a position of leadership, we see them as leading by the example that they set in how they follow. That in the way that they follow the Good Shepherd, someone could keep their eyes on that man and trust if I look at him, I will not get separated from the flock. Because I know he's following Jesus. Members can follow that man as an under-shepherd because he is following Jesus as his shepherd. So shepherds are not self-appointed. Jesus is the only door. So Jesus alone gives authorized access to the sheep for the purpose of recognized, delegated leadership among the flock. True elders, in other words, don't simply make themselves elders. Nor do they insist on being recognized as elders because they feel like they deserve it or they feel an excitement about it in their hearts. Nor do elders make other men elders. I can't make someone an elder the existing elders cannot make someone an elder. We can recognize that Jesus has made a man an elder and gifted him to us as an elder. Jesus makes men elders. Elders, are congregations. elders and congregations recognize men as the elders. They already are in Christ. So men can and should aspire to eldership. It's a noble task. It's a good thing to do. It's an excellent work. Men can prepare for this, seek to consecrate themselves for it, ask God to equip them and consecrate them to it, but Jesus is the door. He's the access point, not only to initial salvation, but to qualified and authorized leadership among the saved. And this means we need to ask Jesus to gift us with qualified elders by letting qualified men into this sheep pen to lead us as Jesus does. Sheep recognize Jesus' voice in his under-shepherds. Part of the way we recognize elders is by hearing them teach God's word, hearing them give godly counsel, hearing them pray. But in order to do that, we have to let them teach and pray publicly among us. We have to be willing to hear them and to see if we hear Christ in them. That's one reason we challenge other men among us to teach on Sunday nights to see if we can recognize the voice of Jesus in the way they teach Scripture. Do we see Christ's love and wisdom in their love and leadership? Do we see these men loving and leading the congregation in discipling friendships and what they believe and how they live and lead? You know what that means? That means that you're not going to be able to come here on a Sunday night and view it as a consumer product that you enjoy. Where do you think people who are trying to test their gifts in teaching can test those gifts in teaching? In the church. We're not going to send a guy to seminary and support him from the missions budget if we haven't heard him teach. But in order to be willing to hear a guy teach who hasn't taught much, you got to be willing to come here and say, you know what, I know it's not one of our best five guys. I know this is his first time, but I'm going to go, and I'm going to be a part of this congregation, and I'm going to see, can I hear Jesus and what he says? And maybe it's a little rough his first go. But as I have heard other godly experienced pastors say, sometimes you got to let a guy mess up the furniture a little bit and be kind of like a puppy in the pulpit until you can train him. Say, okay, all right, all right. <laughs> you mess this up and you mess this up, but, but we can hear Christ in you. Let's clean it up. Let's see if you can grow. That's what good churches do. That's what good congregations do. And good congregations will also say, you know what? We love you enough to say, we've heard you three or four times. I'm not sure you're called to this. I love you. I'm not sure this is it for you. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with not being an elder. You've got to be able to teach. So we don't just look for men who lead in their job or in their neighborhood and then just assume that they're going to be good at leading in the church. We're not looking for the strongest personality or the most dynamic talkers or the most charming disposition. Praise God, we're not looking for that. Or the most persuasive debater with the most magnetic smile. We're looking for elders. We're looking for men who talk and act like Jesus because they know Jesus and follow Jesus as sheep follow the only shepherd they recognize. So, Jesus alone gives authorized access to the church for both recognition and leadership among the flock. And the reason that's true is Jesus' sacrifice. And that leads us to our second point in John 10, 11 to 21. Jesus alone gave the authorized sacrifice for the church. Jesus alone gives authorized access because he alone gave the authorized sacrifice for the church. Jesus just said he came that we might have life and have it in abundance. The way he provides us with that life is by laying down his life in our place for our sins on the cross. As the good shepherd, he sacrifices himself for the good of the sheep. You notice that's what he says about himself being the good shepherd. As soon as he refers to himself as a good shepherd, he talks about laying down his own life for the sheep. Four times in verses 11 to 18, Jesus uses the idea of putting his life forward, placing it in forfeit, laying it down for the benefit of the sheep. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again in verse 17, I lay down my life. And once more in verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. See, this is what it means to Jesus for him to be the good shepherd. He puts his life up, lays it down, sacrifices it, places it forward, offers it up in place of ours. He begins in verse 11 by talking in terms of what any shepherd would do. Any shepherd worth his salt will put himself in harm's way, even death's way, to protect his sheep from predators. That's what a good shepherd does. But as he applies the metaphor to himself, Jesus is not talking merely as an example of what other shepherds should do. He's talking absolutely. He's talking as one of a kind, in distinction from what anyone else could do or has ever done. Jesus lays down his life for the sheep in a way and with an effect that nobody else can. And as he explains what it means to him to be the good shepherd, he's really explaining the nature of his sacrificial death and its significance on our behalf. What gives Jesus the right to exclusive access to the sheep is that he made the authorized sacrifice for the sheep. So as we move through Jesus is describing different aspects of this sacrifice that he has made as our good shepherd. It's a personal sacrifice. In verses 11 to 13, Jesus is the shepherd who gives himself as the sacrificial lamb so that the other sheep can live. The shepherd makes himself the scapegoat. In the world of the metaphor, a hired hand is just punching a clock for a paycheck. That guy doesn't own the sheep. So when push comes to shove, he doesn't really care what happens to the sheep because he doesn't have a vested interest in them. He has no investment in them at all. They're a paycheck to him. It's not a personal loss to the hired hand if the sheep gets eaten by a wolf. That's the owner's problem. That's his loss. So the sheep are not worth dying for to the hired hand. And so when a wolf comes, the hired hand leaves the sheep defenseless. Jesus is different. He cares personally for these sheep in a way that no mere employee can. Verse 11, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus is the one who really does have a vested interest in the sheep because they are his. He owns them. They are his investment. He's bought them. It's his investment at stake. This is personal to him. He has a vested interest in protecting, feeding, leading, caring for them. They're his. He knows them. He names them, even. They recognize him. They rely on him. They relate to him. And he knows it. Their welfare is a personal concern to him. They are worth dying for. To Jesus. Christian, that is how Jesus thinks and feels and is motivated towards you as his sheep. That is why he died for you. Not because he was coerced, but because he cares. Because you are his. Because God the Father gave you to Jesus as one he would die to save. As one whose destiny he would own. Jesus knows your name. He knows your weakness. And he knows your waywardness. He knows your appetites that lead you to contract infections. He knows your distractions that lead you off into dangers. He knows your curiosities that threaten to kill you. He knows your stubbornness and your struggles. He knows your hurts and your heartaches. He knows your failings and he knows your future because he is out in front of you. He knows just what to do for you better than I do, better than any of the elders can because Jesus owns you and he loves it When you look to him with your waywardness and weakness and with your struggles and stubbornness, with your sorrows and dangers and confusions and cares, he doesn't want you going to a different shepherd. That's a betrayal to him. He said, I'm your shepherd. You come to me with that. You come to me with your broken leg. You come to me with your lostness. You come to me with your sorrow and pain and confusion. You ask me, where am I? That's my job. That's my love for you. That's my care for you, Jesus says. He will lead you and feed you. He will guide and provide. He will protect you, and he will correct you. Because his death for you was personal. It was also a substitute sacrifice. Twice here, both in verse 11 and verse 15, we see the phrase, for the sheep, for them, on their behalf, for their benefit, in their place. That is the grammar and syntax of substitutionary atonement. The good shepherd gives his life On behalf of the sheep, for them, in their place, for their benefit, as the substitute penalty and sacrifice that will atone for their particular sins once and for all. The Apostle Paul did not invent the penal substitutionary idea of the atonement, that Jesus took our penalty as our substitute in our place for our sins. Paul did not invent that. Augustine did not invent that. The Reformers did not invent that. The English Puritans did not invent it. The Scottish Calvinists did not invent it. The theologians of Old Princeton did not invent it. Jesus taught penal substitutionary atonement as the meaning and significance of his death because... God the Father invented it and sent Jesus to accomplish it. Jesus is teaching us right here the meaning and significance of his death. It wasn't just a moral example to teach us or show us how to love each other and deny ourselves so that we and all humanity could be better off. It wasn't just a proof of how much God loves us or how much we are worth to him. It wasn't just a victory of God over the powers of evil. It was something Jesus did in our place, on our behalf, for our benefit, as our substitute, to pay the penalty that we deserve to pay for our sins. It was a substitute, his life for ours, in place of ours. He died so that we would not have to die that eternal death of hell suffering forever the condemnation that we deserve for our own sins under the wrath of God. Jesus took that on the cross. His life forfeited so ours might be spared. He took God's wrath, satisfied God's anger over all of our sins in our place for our benefit on the cross. That and nothing less is what happened at Jesus' death. His innocent blood atoned for our guilty souls. Jesus knew That that's what he was doing. He knew that's why he came. That's what he's teaching here. That's what it means. And nothing less for him to be your good shepherd. And he knew who he was doing it for. This is a particular sacrifice, a definite sacrifice. In verses 14 to 15, I know who? Look at your Bible. I know who? My own. And my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. What a comparison. And my life I give on behalf of the sheep. The sheep, my own. That knowledge, I know my own and my own know me, that is a particular knowledge of a particular group Jesus calls his own, those that the Father gave him to save in John 6.37. It's not mere awareness. He's not saying, I know about my own or I know about them or I'm aware No, this is covenant knowledge. I know my own like a husband knows his wife. It is covenant acknowledgement, commitment, and exclusive love. These are definite sheep, it's a definite flock. whom Jesus knows in a particular way, with particular affection and exclusive commitment. They are his own. They are not another's. They are his. These are the ones, the particular ones, for whom Jesus gave his life. He's not just giving his life for sheep in general or for the category or concept of sheep. It's not what he's saying. He's giving his life for the sheep. He knows who he's giving his life for. It's a special relationship, a covenant relationship. In fact, it's a relationship like the one Jesus has with his own father. It is definite, exclusive, specific, particular. He died for his own. That is a doctrine of definite atonement. He knew who he was dying for. Now, for many people, that is incredibly offensive. How can you say that Jesus did not die for all people in the same way? How can you say that he did not just die for the possibility that all people, without exception, would be saved? How can you say that? That doesn't sound Christian. It doesn't sound loving doesn't sound tolerant it doesn't sound open and accepting are those not the cardinal virtues of our society but if you think about it jesus way it has to be this way for jesus to be able to say on the cross it is finished what is finished Atonement, propitiation, the satisfying of God's wrath for the sins of his people, justification, right standing with God, acquittal, reconciliation, the renewal of right relationship, redemption, salvation through the purchase of a price. Those things were not simply made possible by the cross. Jesus did not say, It is possible! He said, it is finished. Jesus accomplished these things on the cross. He, he himself did it. But that raises a question. For whom were those things finished or accomplished? If he accomplished them on the cross, he accomplished them for a particular people. He atoned for them, for his own he propitiated God's wrath for them. He justified them. He reconciled them. He redeemed them. He did it in their place for their sins. If that is not true, if the cross accomplished nothing but a possibility, then it was an empty gesture. But it was not empty precisely because it was a particular sacrifice for a particular people, undeserving as they all are. And that is what makes it mercy. It was God's to give to whom He will out of a whole mass of sinners, all of whom deserve nothing but condemnation, even those He came to save. And He had mercy on many from every tribe, tribe, tongue, and nation. And it is this truth that Jesus is expressing when He says, I know My own, and My own know Me. I lay my life down for the sheep. Jesus made an atonement sufficient for all who will ever want to repent and believe and intended for them. It accomplished His purpose. It achieved His aim. It is finished. And if you believe that, you're one of them for whom He died. That's the evidence. You like that? You want that? You want that to be true of you? You want his death to count for yours? Come on in. It's for you. It's not for the person who's making fun of you for that. It's for you who believe it. And the definiteness of it is your encouragement. This is not A doctrine that is intended to make you doubt your salvation. It's a doctrine made to wonder at the definiteness and the finishedness of it. This was for you. And it is for all who will ever repent and believe. And it is finished. There's nothing left for you to accomplish. He did it. So you wouldn't have to. It's a unifying sacrifice. As particular as his death is, it is also as broad as the nations, global, international in scope. Jesus doesn't just have sheep among the Jews or only among white people or only among black people. In verse 15, he has other sheep that are not part of the Jewish fold. He has to bring them into, and they will not be two flocks with one shepherd or two flocks with two shepherds. They will be one flock, one group, one universal church with one shepherd over them, Jesus. This is why Paul says in Ephesians 2, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace Jew and Gentile, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile us both, Jew and Gentile, to God in one body, in his body, through the cross, there is one people of God through all space and time. There are not two peoples of God, one Jewish and the other Gentile, both with different inheritances or destinies. There is one flock with one shepherd. Jesus said that. One church, international, transtemporal, temporal multi-ethnic in the best sense of the term. This does not mean, though, that we have to seek visible institutional unity for the universal invisible church. In other words, not all theological denominations or cultural separations are a bad thing. The perfect unity of the invisible church will be imperfectly manifested in the time between Jesus' resurrection and his return. Even so, local visible churches should work and pray to see that their own congregational makeup at least reflect the demographic diversity of the cities or areas where they serve or be attempting to. This goes to undermine what church growth strategists call the homogenous unit principle, homogenous, one kind, that churches should only seek to attract one kind of person, one skin tone, one age group, one interest group. That is not what Jesus wants. Jesus does want one flock with one shepherd. That doesn't mean an agenda of forced diversity but it does mean that we should welcome ethnic, social, economic, and even political diversity as God gives it in our area in order to reflect the oneness of God's flock under Jesus as our one shepherd. The unity that we have should not be political, social, or economic. It should be Christocentric. Uniting different ethnicities and interests Under Christ's love and authority is one great reason Jesus sacrificed his life voluntarily. And it is voluntary. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus wasn't obeying against his will. Jesus wasn't forced to the cross. Jesus didn't simply succumb to events that conspired around him to his death. He didn't get crucified simply because he got caught. He gave himself up. Now, friend, look at that. Jesus planned to give himself up in death so that he could pay the penalty for our sins. His death came as no surprise to him. He intended to die. He made himself nothing on purpose. He, being rich, became poor so that you might become rich in him. In his righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin for us. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. He did that voluntarily. Not only that, he had the authority to both lay down his life and to take it back up again. That authority came not simply from his divinity, but also from his sinlessness. He had the right to lay down his sinless life for ours, Because he had committed no sin that deserved death in himself so that his righteousness could be credited to us who believe. And if you believe, if you trust in Jesus' personal sacrifice for your personal place to pay the penalty of your personal sins, then that is the proof that he died for you. You trust it. You hear his voice. You know. That means you are his. Because as we're about to see, not everyone trusts that Jesus made the sacrifice for them. Not everyone sees their need for it. Not everyone sees Jesus like this. Not hardly. It's not good news to everyone. It's good news to those for whom he died. The proof that it was an authorized sacrifice is that it was acceptable to God. God received it. He vindicated Jesus' righteousness in his resurrection. And God accepted Jesus' sacrifice as the atonement. At Jesus' ascension... And seating at God's right hand. That was God's plan all along. And yet, and yet, not everybody likes to hear this stuff. It's a controversial sacrifice. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. And the irony thickens once more. And many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Why do you listen to him? They're calling him a delusional demoniac. This guy's insane. They think there's something seriously wrong with Jesus. Yet the word they use for listen is the same verb in verse 3. The sheep hear, listen to his voice. Why do you listen to him? Here Jesus has just said, my sheep listen to my voice. And their question is, why do you listen to him? He's nuts. Whoa. Their rejection of Jesus only proves him right. And yet others think, could a demon really open the eyes of the blind? And there's that judgment again, the judgment for which Jesus came into the world at the end of chapter 9, judgment of discernment, differentiation, discriminating choice, revealing differences, drawing contrasts, showing things to be what they really are rather than what they purport to be. And others are beginning to wonder, how could this man really give sight to the blind if he's out of his mind? Well, they didn't realize yet that Jesus was not merely a man. The sacrifice he would offer would not just be personal and particular. It would not just be substitutionary and unifying or voluntary or even authorized. It could, in fact, only be all of those things because his sacrifice would be nothing less than divine. That's why we read Ezekiel 34, 1 through 6 earlier in the service. God himself had long ago Prosecuted Israel's unfaithful shepherd kings for neglecting and abusing the sheep. Ah, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, you don't feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strays you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. So they were scattered. Because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. So God promised, I'm going to do it myself. I'm coming down there. I'm going to do it. I will bring them back. I myself will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. The shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel I will feed them with good pasture I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I will make I myself will make them lie down declares the Lord God I will seek the lost I will bring back the strayed I will bind up the injured I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy and then Jesus comes and he says I I am the good shepherd I'm here, just like I promised. What all this means for us is that shepherding, pastoring God's people in the local church, means to give yourself away for specific purposes in the life of the congregation, to gather, to guard, to guide, and to graze the sheep. It's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus gives his life away in order to gather his people into one flock so that he can be the one who will guard them from the wolves, guide them to green pastures, and graze them once they get there. That's shepherding. Do not be confused about this. The word shepherding sometimes gets misused because it gets misunderstood as mere therapeutic counseling or telling people what they want to hear. Or being emotive. Or helping people shift blame. Or excuse their sin. Or permit wrong thinking. Shepherding can involve a few of those things sometimes. But shepherding is giving up your life to gather God's God's people. Guard them from false doctrine and false teachers. Guide them in their way in this life towards heaven. And graze them on the green grass of God's word that's shepherding and sometimes when gathering and guiding involves healing it also means setting a broken bone and that hurts other times it means bonking an unruly sheep on the head who's biting another sheep or grabbing its neck with the crook of the shepherd's staff with urgency in a moment of danger to keep them from wandering off or keep them from falling off the edge of the cliff that they don't see Sometimes it means carrying them on your shoulders when they're weak and tracking down strays and regathering them. It also means encouraging them not to get separated from the group in the first place, which in turn means encouraging them to view themselves as part of the flock and not a loner. You belong in here. Stay with the group, keep close. Don't lag behind, don't wander off, don't get distracted or enamored with something shiny that's close to the cliff. Strengthen your relationships, listen to the shepherd, know and be known, attend, love, serve, pray, persevere, and stay. To be Christ-like is in some measure to exercise this kind of care over another, one another as sheep in a local church, whether you're an elder or a staff pastor or not. We're all supposed to exhort one another daily so that none of us gets hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's why we have covenanted to exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over one another. That's not just an elder vow, that's a congregational commitment. We seek the salvation of our family and friends. We want to gather them in too. Friend, who have you exercised that affectionate care and watchfulness over lately? Who have you called lately? Who have you noticed missing lately? Or do you only expect others to do that for you? Jesus is the way into the safety of God's flock and fold. He gives access to the church because he gave himself for the church. Which raises the question, how did you yourself get in here? You may not be a prosperity preacher sporting bling in front of the baptistry. Still, did you come through the door of faith and repentance in Jesus? Or did you climb over the wall? Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we have wandering hearts and eyes and appetites. Forgive us. And we wonder sometimes, is the grass greener on the other side? But you are a good shepherd. You are a faithful friend. Help us to trust you in all things. To be grateful that you are the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Gather those whom you have not yet gathered. And bring them here and to other faithful churches that we may be together, one flock, with one shepherd. For Jesus' sake, amen.